There's another doctor I know who used to practice in Surat. He's my friend's dad. He asked me to call him James. He was there back in the 1970s, attached to the Royal Thai Army in their counter-insurgency campaign against the Communist Party. During his free time in Surat, he secretly worked on a project translating what is to be done by Lenin from English to Thai for the very same Communist Party his battalion was fighting. He was an undercover cadre, though not by choice. He had narrowly survived the massacre at Tamasat, where he was a student organizer for the party. While many of his associates, including his younger brother, fled to the forest to join the insurgency, he took his activities underground, going on to graduate at Tamasat. He describes those years underground in Bangkok as brutal. He was born the eldest son of a poor Sino-Thai family, a role that comes with tremendous familial obligations, combined with his responsibilities for the party, all while he was studying medicine. The pressure was immense. I ask him what the worst part of the experience was. He says the gossip in the underground community was insidious. Who's a revisionist? Who's breaking party line? Who's been seen speaking to a cop? Who is an undercover cop? Who's fucking who? I asked him if it felt romantic, being an underground cadre fighting for revolution. He tells me yes, but not for long. Over time, less and less so. It gradually became disappointing for everyone. That feeling grew and grew, he said. He had a steady girlfriend for many years, a fellow cadre. He asked the party if they could marry. The party said no, not in the midst of revolution. He studied the writing of Mao intensely. He dutifully followed the party line and orders, despite his disagreements with them. This is Thailand, not pre-revolutionary China. The social and material conditions are different. It has a distinctive status, he tells me 50 years later. I ask him if there were any other writers or movements that he personally aligned with more closely. No. Besides Maoism? No. Not at all. He replies bluntly. This critique of the party is familiar. All of the old comrades I've met have said something along these lines. The same has been noted in much of the literature analysing the party's failures. Overly strict adherence to Maoist doctrine. This is Thailand, not pre-revolutionary China. While much of the fighting power of the party came from the rural poor of Isan or the south, as well as the eastern hill people of the north, those in high-level leadership positions of the party were former students or university graduates with urban backgrounds. China was the primary backer of the party via post-revolutionary Lao. The initial fraternity between the Communist Party Thailand and their comrades in Vietnam has strained intensely following the Sino-Soviet split as such, doctrine followed. While there were significant labour movements emerging in the cities, these were largely not involved with the party, which was focused on energising the rural masses rather than the urban proletariat. The response of the Thai state and their American overseers was ingenious. They built roads, irrigation canals, electricity cables, medical clinics in the rural recruitment grounds targeted by the comrades, followed by the typical mass propaganda campaign which, after 1975, 
painted the comrades as akin to the Khmer Rouge in neighbouring Cambodia. A similarly typical campaign of murder and imprisonment accompanied these efforts, with high-ranking monks declaring that murdering a communist was a holy act to increase good merit. After graduating medicine in Thailand, new doctors were, and still are, arbitrarily assigned a posting. James was sent to the military camp in Surat, where he dressed and wounded imperialist pawns by day, while translating Lenin at night. Among the cadres in Bangkok, the gossip intensified. James had joined the imperialist puppet forces against our brave comrades. In reality, I needed the salary to support my family, he tells me. There, James witnessed the corruption of the Thai military, which was growing fat off American-bought instruments of war. On two occasions, his superiors tried to kill him for not taking part in the corruption. When a vacancy as a malaria researcher became available at a US hospital, James applied. What other choice did I have? He said, alluding to the situation in Surat. The US was offering four times my salary too. After he joined the imperialist empire, he was cut out entirely by the comrades. He went on to further specialist study in the US where he adopted the name James. After he returned, the insurgency had been defeated. The comrades, colleagues and classmates who survived the forest came back to Bangkok. I asked if he got in touch with any of them. Hmm. Maybe I met some, but I could feel their reluctance to contact me. They still look at me as a suspect, a betrayer. But I don't care, because I know who I am myself. I stand alone until now. I have almost no contact with them, even to this day. I have very few friends. You could say that I'm quite lonely. I stand alone. I ask if he has any regrets. He tells me no, that he never had any choices, no agency at all at any point in his life. I ask him if he still believes in the revolution. He tells me yes. I still adore Mao Zedong. After living up country for so long, I decided to spend one full year in Bangkok. It was a bad idea. I regret it after just a couple of months. I've just met some friends near Chulalongkorn University and I'm heading home. I climb the stairs to the BTS station, waiting for those pristinely air-conditioned carriages to arrive. On the next corner is the Erawan Shrine, where 20 bystanders were killed in a bomb attack in 2015. The police arrested someone on a fake Turkish passport shortly after, accusing him of being the bomber. He was never charged. I hear he's in some gulag somewhere. On the day of the blast, I'm with my friend from Pizzanulok. Someone she knows could see the bomb site from her office block. She sent us a photo she took of the debris and the limbs. I look away. Nobody claimed responsibility for the attack. Below me is Ratchaprasong intersection, where hundreds of red shirts lost their lives to military invasion of their protest site. On the BTS, I ride over the tracks at Wat Patum Wanaram, 
where fleeing redshirts were assassinated by sniper fire from soldiers encamped on the tracks below the carriage. I passed Bangjiak BTS station, where Bangkok welcomed in the new year in 2007 with a blast. Bombs went off at nine locations in the city, including here. Only three were killed. More were injured. Nobody claimed responsibility for the attack. I get off the BTS at my stop, Udom Suk. I won't be going downtown again for a few days. The ASEAN summit is about to take place. Traffic is going to be a nightmare. That evening, seven bombs would explode across Bangkok. Fortunately, nobody was killed. And nobody claimed responsibility for the attack. We, the people who live in Thailand, are grateful for the strong arm of the military and the police, who hold the thin line between order and chaos, protecting us against all of the seemingly spontaneous acts of meaningless, unaccountable violence out there. By all accounts, Thailand holds the infamous title of being the most successful coup d'etat country in the past century, approximately 12, depending on who's counting. That's a coup every 7.5 years. Numerous governments have attempted to coup-proof themselves to little avail. Only one elected government has seen out a full term in office. That was Taksin. He was then cooped one year later in his second term. The ubiquity of the military in parliament is often diagnosed as a primary obstacle to Thai democracy. However, the kingdom's proclivity for coups is a symptom of a larger issue. Tied into the domestic and international deep state, the shady alliances of capital and generational patronage networks. The Thai deep state, however, exists only partially in the shadows. It makes little effort to conceal itself, like in many other places. Indeed, this land has seen more coups in the past century than any other. The coup is a routine part of parapolitical life in the kingdom. The contemporary deep state was ushered in post-World War II. It draws on two strands of the political elite, which pre-World War II were at odds, the monarchy and the elite commoners, the latter of which is mostly composed of the military and judiciary. Before the war, these two were bitter enemies, but the spectre of communism and the pressure of heavy-handed American overseers forced a truce which during the course of the Cold War developed into a close alliance. The republican elements of the former ultranationalist, openly fascist regime were discarded, but their ideals remained. A strong, centralised, hegemonic state with a clearly defined ethnic and cultural standard. Capital facilitated the state and the state facilitated capital. The republicanism was replaced with a program of uplifting the monarchy to make them into the benevolent front of the nation, harnessing their religious and feudal patronage networks, combining them with the nationalist militaristic fascism of the 1930s. This was a holy trinity of military, monarchy and capital in an alliance against workers and communism. An alliance which was fiercely backed and made possible by global capital via the tendrils of the US empire. This was the inception and the definition of the Thai deep state. Ever since, 
a not-so-shadowy group of military officers, royal representatives and big capitalists, have ensured that no one dare step foot outside of the tight parameters that skirt national politics. Even Taksin, an elite capitalist himself, even with a little royal blood in him, pushed too far for the liking of the deep state by daring to decentralize Bangkok even a little. The coup, a mechanism of parapolitics, has been completely normalized, ensuring that state policy stays the course set back in the Cold War. This, however, has led to an extreme rigidity in the state and its capacities. During the Cold War, financial capital from the Americans poured into the country, allowing the mass construction of infrastructure and urbanization that ultimately was the most effective means of combating communism. But by the 1980s, the slush funds were beginning to be cut. Communism was less of a threat. The golden age of Thai capitalism beckoned. The age of Prem, a military general appointed as prime minister, one of the deep state's shrewdest operatives. The country opened its borders, markets and workers to foreign capital's ravenous appetite for labor extraction. Sweatshops and factories were built some burnt down. High-rise condos were erected in Bangkok, a jubilant time for the capitalist class. The deep state had served its purpose and delivered. All that was left was for the different factions of the elite to bicker over who got the biggest slice of the pie. Thailand's end of history, however, had its first real crisis in the Tom Yang Gung market crash of 1998, giving rise to that Taksin and Tairak Thai government. Taksin was a reformer of capital, while the deep state was bound by the rigidity of their Cold War inception. Taksin sought to expand the capacity of the economy, bringing in a new base of economic actors into the fold, not just to sell their labour, but to own it as micro-entrepreneurs, as well as regionally stretch the economy to decentralise the mass that had built up and bloated in Bangkok. This method of reform was ingenious and extremely successful in the brief six-year window of his tenure. However, it was deemed too much of a threat to the aforementioned deep state, which repeatedly mobilized to oust him and the red shirt movement that was formed to defend him. The deep state was so bound by its rigidity and its inability to reform and adapt to the 21st century. It was during this period that we saw what happens when there is a breakaway in the deep state. When during the red shirt occupation of Bangkok in 2010, Se Deng, the head of military intelligence, formerly an undercover spook and virulent anti-communist, went rogue, disavowing the military coup that had ousted Taksin. He joined the red shirts in the streets, training armed red militias. The unlikely hero of the hour was giving an interview to press outside the Saladang BTS station when he was assassinated by a sniper's bullet. In reality, Sedang posed no threat, rather an opportunity to show what happens if you break the pact of the deep state. Every now and then, bombs detonate in Bangkok. Nobody claims responsibility. In Udom Suk, I feel far more at home than in the Chulalongkorn area. The accents are different, 
their tones are more familiar. It's filthy and chaotic, stiflingly hot, and it floods often. At one point, my soy is under shallow water for a whole month. The routine of wet feet in the morning is not one that I miss. Living here is exhausting. I feel it in my body and I see it in others. The arm propping up the tired body of a register worker in macro. The motorbike taxi driver dozing precariously on his saddle. The grilled pork seller fast asleep at 2pm on the deafening corner of a succumbent soy. Bodies are drained of their energy from this ruthless extraction of labour. Despite the chaos, Udom Suk, deep in the back soy, feels strangely quiet, almost village-like. Late at night, Bangkok breaks down like this. The metropolis winds into little hamlets, hidden from the main roads, where uncles and aunties eat mooping, get drunk and sing karaoke in the street. One day, two gangs of motorbike taxi drivers start shooting at each other from the corner of my soy. I miss the commotion. No one dies. No one wants to talk about it after. I often go to the local Somtam restaurant for dinner. Isan's soft rock is always playing. It seems like most of the customers are Isana's. They wear company polo shirts, drink beer and take turns going out to smoke. The music's lyrics are always about a lost loved one who left the village to find work and ended up finding a lover instead. The singer mourns their loss, alone in the village, back in Isan. Looking at these Isanas, I wonder if anyone is mourning them. Just as likely, the next song will be the flip side, about moving to Bangkok for work and coming back to find your lover has run off with someone else. After a few months, my refined skills of hating Bangkokians are starting to rust. I used to be a specialist, a naturally crafted, organic Bangkok hater. But the more I talk to the people here, the more I struggle to find genuine Bangkokians. Most are from the central plains to the north or eastwards to Isan. They're just like me. They don't want to be here at all. They just came to have their labour extracted. They want to go back home, but they don't have the opportunity. They're trapped. I think about the orange battalion of workers from Lao. My doctor's friend's family in Salapuri. The balaclava-clad workers in Mare Sot who declined a lift on my bike. The empty villages in Batambong. The next song comes on in the restaurant. Thick Isan language accompanies a pin and acoustic guitar. The lyrics go, I meet the young woman from my past. She steps off the train from Bangkok. We can't talk together like we used to. She speaks Thai now. She forgot us long ago. I have that friend from Singbury, the one whose cousin had a belt buckle from the tank. Her maternal family come from Korat in Isan. She doesn't speak Isan. She tells me, my mum didn't want to teach me, she wanted us to be Thai. I've heard this kind of story countless times. The Isan tongue is a class signifier better discarded in the minds of many. The family rarely had any time or money to go and visit the Korat family. She met them on just a handful of occasions as a teenager. 
Her grandparents don't speak Thai, so mum has to act as an interpreter. I ask if she has a good relationship with them, despite the language barrier. She doesn't really answer. I guess she doesn't really know. Domestically, the further you travel from Bangkok, the more esoteric the lingua franca becomes. It blends, adapts and develops, village by village, muban by muban. A grey, shifting spectrum through accent to dialect to language. Keep travelling into the periphery, away from the core, and speaking Thai will only get you so far. You need to become acquainted with some of the relatives of the Lao language family. Even then, languages still shift on the hyper-localized level. In the north, the quick-fire rapidity of prayer, spoken fast and loose, is a world away from nearby Lampoon, spoken leisurely and without haste. A few years ago, I began to feel fairly confident speaking Kamueng, the language of the north, a Lao cousin of Isan. I take it for a spin in different situations, in the market, the bank, the post office, the indoor damsang, the outdoor damsang, a pattern emerges. You learn when and where it's appropriate to use this language. The great air-con divide becomes apparent again. Kamuang in the hot outside air, Thai in the cool inside. I attend the opening weekend of the first Swenson's franchise in Fang district in the far north of Chiang Mai. It's busy. I watch as the staff dart about behind the counter, barking orders between one another in Kamueng. Local families walk in, chatting amongst themselves, also in Kamueng. When it's time to order, however, everyone instinctively knows the drill. This is the air-conditioned customer service. They switch to Thai. Language is not just an indicator of class, but an indicator of aspiration and a recognition of custom. That linguistic family of Lao cousins are not tongues of professionalism, progress, or mechanically conditioned air. Another friend is from rural Udon Thani. He's the one that taught me San language. We spent hours running through vocabulary, practicing conversations in different scenarios, contextualizing the language within the milieu of Isan. He hates Bangkok with an informed passion. He desperately wants to get out of the poverty of rural Udon. I ask him if he has kids with a Thai woman, will he teach them Isan? Of course, I assume he's going to say yes, but no. He says it depends. He says... If they grow up in Isan, sure. If not, then so be it. No need to force it. I'm surprised, I tell him. He says, look, everything changes and develops over time. The language probably will be gone in a hundred years or so, or it'll change to something unrecognizable. So be it. There were other languages in the past and there'll be more in the future. They come and go, they develop and they fade away. And that's just how it is. He tells me what matters most is having a good job, a solid income, and a stable life. Maybe once that is fixed, we can talk about saving our culture, he says. Still, though, those former slaves in the concrete mines of Salapuri speak their archaic Lao in day-to-day -day life. The need to retain their ancestors' vernacular persists. 
for one reason or another. back in Nan province with Auntie Dang, who used to work in the toy factories in Bangkok. We're walking up the doi to her cornfields. The air is fresh and the sky is clear. We can see all the way to Lao from here. Soon the region will be enveloped in a cloud of toxic annual smog. But for now, our lungs appreciate the much needed fresh air for the walk up the hill. The midday sun is rising rapidly. The red dirt path beneath our feet is steep. Auntie Dang needs to take several breaks. She's getting old. In the village, everyone is old. We're an hour's drive from the nearest 7-Eleven. Electricity came to this village only around 30 years ago, the same time as a middle school opened in the local Amphur. The local people speak a variant of Kamuing which is unfamiliar to me. It's fast, not at all like where I'm from. I struggle to understand them and their thick accents. They're old, tough people, their hands and faces weathered from a lifetime of agricultural work. Very few young people live in the surrounding villages. Population is declining. The youth have mostly moved to the city, Bangkok, Chiang Mai or Prayer seeking work. Few return. During the dry season, groundwater springs bubble up to provide natural irrigation and clean drinking water. I drink directly from the spring. It's fresh and delicious. The local people grow rice and vegetables, as well as raising animals for meat. Overlooking them are the cornfields. Dry, distant, bald-looking hilltops, too high for the spring water to reach. After we pass the tree line, we hit the cornfields. The rest of the day will all be corn. The stalks stretch off beyond the peak. Corn, corn and corn. It's dead, dry and faded. Auntie Dang explains that they let it die and dry out for harvest. We reach her fields. Two uncles are working there. We say hello and share some cigarettes. Felled corn plants crunch beneath our feet and wrap around our ankles. Here, the harvested corn is put in sacks. The waste product is left on the ground. We walk up a little further to the salar to rest. We clamber in and lie down on the burlap sacks, filled with corn, of course. It's quite comfortable. After the harvest, the corn ears will be sent down the mountain to the processing facility, where the kernels are stripped, weighed, and sent for further processing in the central region, where it will be turned mostly into animal feed. Auntie Dang does not legally own the farmland. It was distributed to her from the farmer's collective of the village who cleared it. They too don't own it. Here, they share both land and labour. She tells us she makes very little income from her fields, just a few thousand baht after the harvest. That money, however, is crucial for her and her son. After the corn is harvested, the fires begin. Fire is the only way to clear the land of all that waste product to make space for next year's crops. In a more agriculturally developed corn-producing country, such as those in Europe, the land is not burnt but ploughed. 
digging the waste product into the soil, allowing for it to biodegrade and making space for new seeds. However, in these steep hills with its elderly population, the labour power simply does not exist, nor does the technology or infrastructure to bring heavy agricultural machinery up the near-vertical dirt tracks. Furthermore, during the dry season after harvest, there's no rain to provide the necessary moisture to allow the waste to adequately degrade. Controlled fires are set alight. It creates a heavy, thick smoke that lazily drifts into the air. A few uncles and aunties stand around keeping an eye on it, making sure it doesn't get out of control. It's hot, dirty work, best done in the evenings or early morning. Across the northern region, these fires are lit. From Pechabun to Meihongson, Cheng Rai to Kangpangpet, thousands of small controlled fires sending the unwanted corn waste up into the sky. On occasion, field fires get out of control and the forest fires erupt. A smog descends on the land. Beginning in February, it often lasts until May. Rain seldom falls to clear the stagnant air, nor weather systems to disperse it. It engulfs the village where life is lived outside of air-conditioned walls, causing respiratory problems that will last generations. Thailand is the largest corn exporter in the region, as well as the 12th largest animal feed exporter in the world. Those who make significant money from corn are not the farmers. They are the monopolists of the agricultural sector in Bangkok and overseas. Indeed, one litigious Thai company in particular is the world's largest producer of animal feed. These are the real owners of the farmer's labor. They are forcibly holding the farmer's hand to light the flames in the field and then leaving them to take the blame. Outside attitudes towards the northern peasantry are far from flattering. Stupid and ignorant bumpkins, banog. They burn their land and complain about the pollution. The urban middle class in the north have little sympathy for the farmers in the hills who pollute their cities, while those charged by Bangkok with governing the region often just ignore the issue, occasionally penning into some law about anti-burning, which does nothing other than penalising an unlucky few farmers. Enraged urban citizens have even demanded the confiscation of land as punishment for those who seem to carelessly burn the fields, when ironically, many of the farmers like Auntie Dang don't even own them. The farmers themselves don't want to grow corn. It's tough, demanding and unpleasant work. The small amount of income from the corn harvest could be easily supplemented by the state. However, advances in quality of life for rural farmers in the past century have never come as benevolent handouts from the state, but only after significant and organized fights by the rural working class demanding a better deal. The Bangkok government has consistently used a carrot-and-stick approach to these demands. Post-World War II, farm organizers were murdered en masse by the state, a grim reminder for those who sought to change the status quo. Simultaneously, peasants were granted greater land rights, as well as social programs and investment in rural infrastructure as a means of quelling their dissent. One of the primary mechanisms of the rebellion in the 20th century was the Communist Party. Their insurgency was highly active here in Nan province. 
The carrot can be seen in the establishing of local middle schools, like that in Auntie Dang Zampur, and the electrification of the village 30 years ago, curiously coinciding with the disbanding of the insurgency. The stick can be seen in the long list of names of missing farm organizers and the villages destroyed by the Thai army that were seen to be too sympathetic towards the insurgency. In more recent years, the red shirt movement took up the cause before too being crushed by the state. The corn grown in these idyllic fields by people like Auntie Dang travels to those lowland industrial zones like Chomburi to be processed by two generations of a Cambodian family or maybe the descendants of a displaced Lao community. The wealth is extracted. Luxury condos are built in Bangkok. Their glass facades look down on the capital's crowded boulevards, where those upcountry red shirts were murdered en masse, so as to perpetuate this very system. A few months after visiting Auntie Dang, the upcountry smog envelops my region. At its peak, the sky is a deep grey-orange colour. I can look directly at the hazy sun at 2pm. The cloud enters every seam, every pore of my body. I feel sick, my eyes sting, my head aches, my throat throbs. I can't sleep. I escape for clearer skies in Bangkok. I feel guilty for leaving my friends and neighbours behind, but it's just five days. There'll be plenty more time to suffer together when I get back. I ask the Bangkokians what they think of the situation up north. They tell me that now is a bad time to visit Chiang Mai. This is how they perceive it. Their northern gem is a little dirty. Better let it get cleaned up before they can enjoy it again. The millions of people who live in here day in, day out, barely cross the minds of the Bangkokians. Like the vassal states of old, with their jewels and slaves, the North is just another property for them to enjoy. I'm in Bangkok again, having dinner with my friend's dad, a high-ranking police officer. I'm about to head down to Patani for a visit. I've never been there before, and I'm curious to see the insurgent region firsthand. At dinner, I mentioned to dad my plans. He's apoplectic. No way, no way, me die, me die. You can't go, it's not safe. There are terrorists everywhere. When I go, I take a helicopter and I ride in a military convoy the whole time. He fails to realize that I'm not a high-ranking police officer. The Greater Patani region, which Thais call the three southern provinces, is made up of Patani, Naratiwat and Yala, as well as a few districts in Songkla. The area is majority Malay, but historically was a vassal kingdom under Siam. During the mass centralization of the state that came after the 1932 revolution, a mass policy of Thaiification was imposed within its borders, including Patani. The policies were led by the dictator Field Marshal Pibun during his tenure. Pibun, a devout fascist who famously kept a bust of Mussolini on his desk, declared his birthday to be a national holiday, and later extended the same decree to his wife and child. These national holidays were militaristic, with military parades in the larger cities. He also strongly encouraged everyday people to hang his portrait in their homes. A militaristic youth wing was also founded, not unlike the Hitler Youth. 
Generally, Pibun was attempting to build a cult of personality, much like his fascist compatriots in Europe. This also included seizing and heavily monitoring the media and cultural sphere. Pibun's programs of Thaiification, or the Thai Cultural Revolution, <laughs> was an attempt to codify and enforce what he perceived Thainess to be. His definition of Thainess would draw entirely from central Thailand, with an emphasis on the Bangkok military elite's culture, which for decades had been heavily influenced by the West. Twelve enforced cultural mandates were issued. Some of them included a Western-style dress code, a standardized Thai language, a banning of declaring regional identities, and even codifying how many hours of sleep one should have. These mandates, despite their at times bizarre nature, were genuinely enforced whenever possible. The aim was to create a clear, well-defined definition of Thainess and spread it to every corner of the nation. This, of course, led to the mass decline of regional identities, particularly among the Buddhists in the central plains who eased right in, while many Muslims, particularly the ethnic Jawi Malay in Patani, suffered greatly at the hands of the new policies. Madrasas were forced to close and Muslims were banned from wearing Islamic attire. The Jawi community would later form an armed rebellion against the state, which is ongoing to this day. Much like in the northern hills a few decades later, the purpose of such assimilation policies was not purely cultural. The program intended to make use of subjects who, prior to assimilation, were not adequately benefiting the imperial core. By capturing them and integrating them into Thai society, they were put to use for state-building, conscription and economic productivity, growing that fat imperial core of Bangkok. The journey down to Patani was uneventful. A flight to Songkla and a minivan to Patani City. We only passed one checkpoint, something I had already become well accustomed to up north. Arriving in town, however, it immediately felt like a stale war zone. The inner city was quiet, full of shuttered shops and police barricades, where camo-clad soldiers sat behind sandbags, M16 slung on their backs. Bombings and shootings by the separatist rebels in the region were common. A few months later, 15 Thai soldiers would be ambushed and killed in the province. I find the locals to be welcoming. However, all seem apprehensive to talk politics. Normally, me and my partner are well-received as foreigners who speak Thai. However, here, the first question is, Can you speak Malay? For the most part, the soldiers were quite polite, treating me with a kind of inquisitiveness. I began to almost feel sorry for them. Mostly they were young kids from rural areas, drafted into the military through no fault of their own, thrown into an imperialist conquest they likely knew little about, though I dare not ask. Any semblance of sympathy quickly evaporated when I saw them haul an old Malay uncle out of his rusted pickup truck at gunpoint for what seemed to be an arbitrary search. It was here, in the greater Patani region, that had seen the massacre of 85 peaceful protesters in Takbai district 15 years prior, during Taksin's premiership. The protesters arrested and bound were piled on top of each other into trucks. Those at the bottom were crushed to death. At dinner a few years later, 
Some redshirt friends are discussing Taksin. What do you see as his greatest sin? Somebody asks. We can't decide between Takbai and the drug war. Before I went to Patani, I had never heard of the name Haji Sulong. I hear the south of the border in Malaysia is much the same. Sulong was the figurehead of the Patani self-determination movement post-World War II. A teacher at a pondok, something like a madrasa, Sulong returned from study in Saudi Arabia and Egypt to synthesize a unique blend of Nasserism, Salafism and local Patani fought into its own coherent creed of liberation. Today, Islamic practices in Patani can trace many of its roots back to Sulong, its own eclectic interpretation of Islam, far removed from that south of the border in Malaysia. Sulong spent time in and out of prison, along with many other activists of the 1950s. In 54, he was summoned to a police station in Songkla. He travelled there with his 15-year-old son. The two were never heard from again. Years later, the police officers involved would admit to Sulong's murder. The bodies were never found. In Chulalongkorn, I couldn't see Jit Pumisak, but in Patani, I can see Haji Sulong. His black and white picture shows a stern man in a white baju kurung traditional clothing. It's not hard to see Sulong here, as many of the men looking back at me on the streets of Patani are dressed just the same and are wearing that same stern face that comes with a life lived under military occupation. The grim death of Haji Sulong is yet another name to add to the long tally of political actors murdered by the state. I take the bus from Vientiane to Udon Thani, down the route where so many slaves were marched. The bus is stuffy and slow. The road is straight and bland. Over the past century, Udon Thani underwent several permutations. It was a mid-sized Isan town until the 1950s when the US Air Force and Air America moved in, making it one of their key regional outposts against the spread of communism. From there, the airbase bombing runs went into Laos, Cambodia and Vietnam, as well as attacks on the Thai comrades' bases in the forests. Udon became a booming town, a hub of economic prosperity to combat rural poverty. This was a long time ago, though. Today, the city is tired, old, decaying. Empty shop fronts with rusted iron shutters line the wide boulevards, designed by the Americans, for the car-dependent cities of the future. On the corner of the central roundabout, an abandoned car showroom recalls better days. American Air Force bases were dotted across the country. Bangkok, Korat, Nakhon Panom, Nakhon Sawan, Chomburi, Ubon Ratchatani, Udon Thani. As Udon boomed, so too did the other surrounding areas, with workers brought in to sell their labour to the 20th century imperialists. This, of course, included selling sex. In Chombury, the town of Pattaya was a prime destination for GIs on shore leave during their two-decade invasion of Vietnam. Pattaya became the sex capital of the whole region, importing women for the GIs. Today, Pattaya still holds the title, the sons and grandsons of the GIs continue their legacy. 
Thailand was quite literally built in the image of the American planners, cars and capitalism. Then too was the domestic Thai mythos grafted, one of individual stoicism, modesty, hard work, self-reliance and unconditional love for the nation. A mythos that just so happened to align perfectly with their position as a vassal state for the US. The antagonisms that defined Thailand prior to World War II were reconciled with the US as a mediator and enforcer, guaranteeing the integration of monarchy, military and capital into a powerful and coherent wall against communism. This alliance formed the rigid parapolitics that continues to this day, governed by that inflexible deep state defined in the last century and subsequently rooted to it. This is no more apparent than in places like Udon, where the boulevards are crumbling, infrastructure is rotting, and governance entirely lacks the capacity to address it. A friend from rural Udon lives right next to the Tessaban police station. His dad is a cop. In the red shirt riots of 2010, numerous government offices in Isan were ransacked and looted by protesting red shirts. The Tessaban police station was raided. I'm told that in the Ampur, it's an open secret that many of the red shirts that trashed the station were the officers themselves. Much like the wide American-designed boulevards, the state infrastructure and the national mythos that holds up Thailand is crumbling under the weight of its own contradictions. I've heard that in Prom Pong in central Bangkok, there is the fanciest supermarket I will ever see. Gourmet Market sits atop a series of cascading escalators above five floors of high-end designer stores. Inside is an Eden, vibrant salmon, plump fruit, ripe vegetables, freshly baked croissants. If you are in any doubt, the shopping trolleys are literally gold. In the tea section, I see the smiling faces of women wearing round turbans beaming back at me. They're ethnic Lisu women supposedly the farmers of that tea in the Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai hills. The package also bears the brand of the monarchy, its royal project tea. This was the program that Grandfather Thi worked on for so many years. Initially conceived of to wean the hill farmers off of producing opium, now it's big business. You can buy royal project produce in almost every 7-Eleven in Thailand, but this isn't 7-Eleven. This is Gourmet Market, 312 baht, reads the price tag, around the same as one day of salary for minimum wage workers. The Royal Project is one of the most successful PR campaigns of the Thai state. Intrepid workers like Thi would trek up the opium-rich hills and teach the remote ethnic minorities how to farm alternative products like tea, coffee or other highland-specific crops. Over time, the project would set up outposts where they could monitor the locals more closely and act as processing hubs to ship the produce down to the lowlands. They were then sold at jacked-up market rates, but to shop real project was to shop for the nation. Of course, 
The real purpose of crop replacement programs were to absorb the hill minorities into productive economic activities rather than producing opium, which was funneled abroad by local drug lords. Previously, the highland people had been semi-nomadic, moving from hill to hill every few years, surviving off of a mixed lifestyle of small-time agriculture, swindle, foraging and hunting. As the tendrils of capital began creeping into the hills in the mid-20th century, so too did the complexities of post-colonial geopolitics. Remnants of the defeated Kuomintang were some of the first to utilise the hills for opium. Following them was a series of other warlords that would rise and fall during what is dubbed the Golden Triangle era. The local people were to adapt. Opium was grown, harvested, processed and shipped abroad. The early regional demand came thanks to the US invasion of Vietnam. Heroin really helps a day goes by for imperial soldiers fighting a losing war. Thailand, which was at the time a de facto American vassal state, declared opium illegal, sending civil servants like Grandfather Thi to the mountains to begin the job of transitioning to other crops. Sometimes, when Thi had had a few whiskies and was in the mood, He'd tell me stories of off-the-book CIA officers helicoptering in to the remote villages, dropping off weapons and leaving with opium. See Air America and the Phoenix program for more details. Ultimately, for the Thai state, opium was a secondary concern. The Royal Project was a means of extending the reach of the state to those remote hills. It also put an end to the locals' semi-nomadic way of life declaring huge swaths of the forest as national parks. The state had outlawed crops and outlawed their way of life. It would force the hill people what to produce while acting as the only buyer and seller for their commodities, as well as the landlord. This vertically integrated model was a fusion of both state and capital to capture the lost labor of those populations on the far periphery. Today, the Royal Project outposts are still functioning. Technically, they serve the purpose of agricultural research and development, though the real purpose, for many, serve as laybys for domestic Thai tourists from urban areas, kind of embassies to help the lowland Thai people feel acquainted with the faraway hills as a means of continuous soft power for the state, to ingratiate and integrate themselves with the local population and absorb them into its core mechanisms. The tea for sale in Gourmet Market, Prompong, is the fruit of a decades-long imperial project. To expand the frontiers of capital, to extract the resources and labor that it finds on that frontier, and bring it back to the imperial core in the form of commodities for the market, or tea for 312 baht. I visit Elisu village for a couple of nights in the far north of Chiang Mai province. I'm staying with the friend of a friend around Lisu New Year. The drive there was mesmerizing, the hills rising and falling, thick forests interrupted with the occasional stunning vista. At one point, down in a river valley, a lazy herd of buffalo block the road. We drive slowly, watching them listlessly part way. Everything feels slow here. The village is charming, a collection of dirt pockmarked roads, bamboo fences and narrowly packed houses. 
It's not long after King Bumipon's death and there are old royal yellow flags everywhere. The sun is setting, dusty children play in the streets, old men in tight beanies and baggy coats laze around the local shop. We head up the hill to the local shrine with my friend's brother. I'm told it's the shrine of Ampu Muhi, the local spirit. The brother carries two clucking chickens under his arms. They're chatting in Lisu. He doesn't speak Thai. Incense sticks are lit and prayers are mumbled. The chickens' throats are slit. We watch them dance around the shrine, spouting blood until they fall. We head back down the hill with two silent chickens for dinner. The background of my friend's phone is a picture of Chayapum Passe. He was a popular local land rights and environmental activist in this district. On all accounts, he was a sweet teenage boy who just liked to write folk songs. He had been gunned down by the military at a checkpoint nearby here just a month prior, dubiously accused of trafficking drugs. His smiling face flashes each time my friend gets a text. The chickens are skinned and boiled. Today is a minor holiday. Villagers are coming round to drink and to dance. As they start to arrive, we notice the stark linguistic difference between the generations. Those under 30 speak to us in fluent Thai, while those over mostly just smile and nod. The gap is marked by the arrival of the Thai state in the area. That mass push by the state for governance of the northern periphery. In the past, the villagers relied on themselves and Ampur Muhi for guidance until a higher power arrived. Today, there's a local government office covered in flags and murals to the monarchy. Those who head up the office are not locals, rather they're Thai people brought in to govern the Lisu population. The same is true of the teachers in the local schools. Thai civil servants assigned to teach the national curriculum and Thai language. There's also been a concerted effort on building Buddhist temples in these more remote areas, which serve to supplement and eventually replace the spiritual beliefs held and practiced by the local people. A banjo-esque instrument arrives. A drunk uncle is plucking it. The villagers slowly make a circle, holding hands. They sing in Lisu. It's catchy. They dance together around the flickering fire in the middle. The children swing off the arms of the smiling adults. Everyone is euphoric. I think everyone is drunk. As the singing goes on, the children start to change the words into a silly rhyme. No longer in Lisu, now it's in Thai. I wonder how many more generations of dancing chickens Ampumuhi's spirit will get to consume. On the wall of my friend's home, there's a portrait hanging of an older, slender man. He has narrow cheekbones, sunken eyes, and dark black hair. This is my friend's dad. He was shot dead ten years ago. It's not clear by who, but what is clear is why. He was engaged in a long-running protest with the local government of villager land rights. The lives of the local people here run parallel to state violence, state encirclement, and labor extraction all ultimately enforced by lethal subjugation.
There's a song by the folk rock band Carabao. The intro lyrics go, Shea never died. He lives on the back of a pickup truck, referring to the Shea Guevara stickers found on the back of trucks across the country. The lyrics call to mind the closing line of Jip Pumisak's ballad by Caravan. He died in the forest. His red blood soaked the impoverished soil. Its red colour lasts on and on. The names of both Shea and Jit live on in immortalised song, but both are, in name, anthropomorphizations of the wider discontented poor. A tired, broken and exploited network of the proletariat, of peasants, of women, of the poor bound to sell their labour, bound to debt, to familial obligations and bound to an exhausting life. The violent deaths of both Shea and Jit are significant in so much as we know their names. Those at Ratchaprasong or in Pupan or Takbai are nameless to most, but their memories live on in the minds of those tired old buffalo who dream of being human. Shea lives on the back of the pickup truck. Jit's blood forever stains the red soil. The thousands of other lives lost to violence to labour extraction live on somewhere else in the political consciousness of the working class. Here, much of the subconsciousness of political thought is defined by violence. Just across the state borders, in places like Burma and Cambodia, violence is far more ubiquitous in the decision-making process for everyday life, pushing workers into the fish trap of Mersot or the industrial powerhouse of Chombury. Here, however, there exists an uneasy understanding of violence, one that has lived it and is extremely reluctant to live it again, stashing it not so deep. Thai politics is dotted but not littered with political massacres. Some visible, other not. The holy men, Tamasat, Black May, Takbai and Rajaprasong weigh heavily in the back of the minds of the working class. These are instances where the state has shown that it is willing and capable of publicly using mass violence. Many too remember the private violence of the mid-2000s, the war on drugs, the arrests, the spontaneous savage interrogations and masses of near-invisible extrajudicial murders, which were so prevalent and yet somehow so inconspicuous. In the previous century, those who sought to harbour the revolutionaries of the insurgency faced murder and state brutality, which publicly is still entirely ignored to this day, yet still remembered by those who lived it. On an individual level, if you're willing to challenge the power of the state, violence is not so much of a threat, but an inevitability. How many activists have been beaten, tortured or thrown into overcrowded sadistic prisons in the past decade alone? Their stories and experiences, their blood, sends a chilling message to anyone brave enough to emulate them. These are the survivors. Many others have simply just been murdered, disposed of, disappeared, sometimes on the phone to their loved ones, their bodies tossed into the Mekong. Of course, in Thailand's domestic periphery, violence is far more of a ubiquitous facet of daily life. Those who live on land that they do not own, like the Hmong or the Lisu, face a constant threat of violent eviction. For migrants who travel here to sell their labour, life is marred by the violence in the workplace, 
and the urban slums. Women in particular are subjugated to horrific violence in the sex industry, a historic haven for misogynistic barbarity, which incidentally was built to serve those colonial troops of the last century, imported from the USA. This kind of violence, both present and historical, both seen and unseen, serves as a constant threat to those who seek to change their present conditions. In August, during the early days of the 2020 Bangkok protest movement, nearly 50 years after the massacre at Tamasat University, students fought the police in the streets. For many of them, it was their first experience of state violence. Seeking refuge from tear gas in Chulalongkorn University, the fearful whispers echoed the memory of Tamasat. Could they do it again? I think they could do it again. The fear is prevalent and justifiable. The state have proof of concept for explicit mass violence, but this exists in the context of overall peace. Those who wish to challenge the status quo are put in an awkward existential position. During those protests of 2020, many were asking whether the old red shirts would join them. Many were disappointed when they didn't, but who can blame them? The memory of that violence first or second hand informs the collective political calculation of, is it worth it? The widely held belief is that if you die a violent death far from your home, your spirit cannot move on. This accounts for the ghosts like those comrades in the forest, and so too does it account for the millions of migrant lives lost to labour extraction. A life lived under the violence of the state and capital. A life lost far from home. They say Bangkok drains your soul. You can see it in the tired eyes and the planted arms propping up the exhausted bodies. As the life force drains out of a worker's body, they become more and more of a machine. The repetitive motions, responses, the commutes, morning alarm clock. Hello, ka. Me sama shit me ka. Kop kun ka. Bangkok drains your soul. It extracts your life force, your labor force. It trains, mutates, and mutilates the body into that of a machine. Of course, it's not just Bangkok. At the hospital in Surat, the policy is to fix the machines of human capital, those workers who broke down by losing a finger. No matter, it's just a little broken, it still works. Just chop off the broken part and put the machine back in the factory line. There are, however, those small places that foster a quiet kind of resistance. Maybe it's the Somtam restaurant in Udom Suk that plays soft rock, or karaoke sessions in the Soys or going home to dance around the fire with a banjo in the hills. These spaces and moments of commune are where the strength to reclaim the soul is fertilized and nurtured. There were those who garnered enough strength to rise up and reclaim their souls from rapacious capital. The peasant organizers, the old comrades, the red shirt aunties and uncles, the holy men, those who were crushed and defeated, those who saw their friends and families maimed and murdered. 
In 2020, when the younger generations called on the old uncles and aunties to join them in the streets, it was no different to those Isan activists who called on the ghosts of the holy men in Ubon. The ghosts are tired. Let them rest. Let them commune. Ghosts are something quite real. Whether they are supernatural, ectoplasmic, or just a feeling. It doesn't really matter whether we, the living, just imagine it and defined it, as the witch doctor said. Without question, they exist. Thai society is fascinated by ghosts. You can see it everywhere. In films, books, in YouTube videos and AM radio. There's something lurking there. Something unseen. Some kind of invisible suffering just under the surface that can't be expunged. A ubiquitous horror or sadness that haunts everyday life. Something that cannot die. Shay never died. He lives on the back of a pickup truck. Jit died in the forest, but his red blood lives on and on. While the Isan holy men still loiter around the plains, and old comrades still wander the forest. I can't see Jit in Chulalongkorn's campus or in Batambong, but he's lurking there somewhere. Perhaps in his ethereality, he eludes definition, just like the witch doctor said. The characteristics shared by the holy men, the communists and the red shirts are no coincidence. Each relatively spawned from the same region, from the same class with the same grievances. They articulate and organize their resistance as they could interpret it at the time. From mysticism to Marx to the market. Indeed, there are families in Isan who have members in all three movements. Generations of struggle rise and fall but never die. They just pick up the ghosts of the past. The endless cycle of samsara spins on, as new movements repeatedly try to break out, only to be put down again by Bangkok's cannons. These ghosts haunt the present moment. They are there, like the aging red-shirt aunties and uncles who stayed away from the fight, or holy men who welcomed the new dead at the hospital. Like smoke they rise. You can make out shapes for a moment in time, but you can't touch them. They disappear, fading into the exhaustion of overworked bodies and extracted labour. <laughs>